Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and yet again, I find myself painfully, agonizingly thinking of Melvin Truss. Melvin was a 17-year-old black youth killed by San Jose police officer Paul Ewing. He was killed in 1985, 36 years ago. Barack Obama hadn't even started law school yet. It was the first march against police brutality that I ever participated in. I still remember to this day Melvin's mother thanking me for coming out and being part of that uh, demonstration. 36 years later, after literally countless police murders of unarmed black people, during the trial of Derek Chauvin, the man who murdered George Floyd a year ago, setting off the international protest about systemic anti-black racism, just 10 miles away from where George was killed, this past Sunday, another unarmed black man, Duante Wright, was killed by a police officer, shot and killed during a traffic stop by a 26-year veteran cop who apparently accidentally shot him while intending to use her taser. And so, obviously, whatever happens in the Derek Chauvin trial, we are a long way away from justice for Black people in America. And these killings keep happening in the context of the ongoing struggle for political power in this country. In the past three months alone, Republicans have introduced 361 voter suppression bills in 47 states. And while the right works feverishly to suppress the votes of people of color, many Democrats are arguing that the party should keep its distance from the movement for black lives and its demand to defund the police and reimagine public safety. So there's a lot happening and we have a lot to talk about. And for that conversation, I am joined by my co-host Charlene Chang and our longtime friend, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, who was with me at Stanford back in the day in the 80s when we were participating in our first marches against police brutality. Greetings to you both. Hope you're both hanging in there. And Charlene, do you want to help get us in today's topics? Hi, Steve. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I just want to say hi, Julie. Good to have you on today. It's been a bit of a minute since we've had you here. So yeah, it's forward. great to be back with you. all Looking forward to being in conversation with you. Yes. So, Steve, there's a lot to talk about, and today's podcast will be a review and discussion of some of the main topics in the news and headlines right now. As you had mentioned, we're going to talk about the, the Derek Chauvin trial. We're also going to really get into this issue of voting rights and the you know full-on attack on our voting rights, the New American majority specifically. We'll be talking about why it's happening and what the reaction and responses have been. And you're going to be sharing with us, Steve, some of your ideas on how, you know, what we should be doing now. And we're also going to be talking about the anti-trans legislation that is also the full-on, you know, full-scale attack on that particular community by Republicans and the current iteration of those fighting in the Confederate position of the ongoing what you call civil war. So let's start with Minnesota and Derek Chauvin's trial. In last week's newsletter, we talked about what true justice looks like, because we know that if it's not Derek Chauvin, and as we've seen just a week after our newsletter has come out, that with the shooting of Duante Wright, that it will be a different officer, 
until there's fundamental change, nothing's going to change. And we'll talk about this more later, but what we need, uh, as we've talked about on this podcast before, are bold new policies, for example, those that truly address the racial wealth gap and to initiate closing that gap. Again, when I was referring to the newsletter, I want to encourage all our listeners that if you haven't already, please do subscribe, visit our website, and you can sign up to get our weekly newsletter. In it, we have all sorts of different kinds of content that you can't all fit into each episode. But if you are enjoying our podcast, you'll really enjoy our newsletter. So do go to our website and check that out and sign up. And I wanted to check in with each of you, Steve and Julie, and just find out, you know, how are you processing both the Chauvin trial and this recent shooting case of Duante Wright? It's it's just been hellish. I mean, watching the trial play out and seeing, having to, you know, revisit all those horrific images and seeing new ones was already, you know, really, uh, I mean, it's just visceral reactions on a, you know, daily basis. But then for it to happen again, I mean, it was, it, it, I still haven't really made sense in my mind and come to some way to really put it all together. You know, tried talking about it briefly with my, my teenager, but it's, I mean, it's just horrific. You know, it's, it, it's hard to even come up with words, honestly, and especially as a parent, how to explain this to, to somebody who, who wants to understand it when you yourself don't. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I can't even watch the, um, I can't even, not only can I even watch the trial, I can't even read the articles because just like yeah. the, the, the premise mm-hmm. that we're just going to have a whole discussion here around whether it's just, there's, there, there's any scenario <laughs> where it was justified for this man to put his knee on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes till he died. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of, and it's just like, you, I get these little glimpses of articles and this and that, and they got to, you know, prove it a cardiologist and there's got to be somebody else and saying, no, you don't actually do that. I mean, just the, it's, it's, uh, you know, yeah, I don't even have words. I can't, and I'm not watching any of it. And, um, you know, I guess I'm frankly offended that the trial's even happening, that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that premise, you know, exists in that regard. So, you know, you've got that. And then, so on top of that, right, then you have the shooting of this, this week, right? So it's like, there's an unrelentingness to it. And like, you, you know, even if you try to wall yourself off from some of this, you know, nonstop, you know, assault, then it continues to actually break through. And it's, it's pushed me to a way out of my, you know, trying to, you know, preserve some sanity with some levels of like uh, escapism and whatnot, which I, you know, as you know, on the, I've talked to the pod before about my, I tend to go to my you know, Nordic noir late night getaways. Last night, kind of because of all of this stuff, I wound up watching this HBO special. It's called Exterminate All the Brutes. And uh, uh, Shindy Maxton had te- uh, tweeted about it. And it's a four-part series on the history of uh white supremacy and the rise of white supremacy in this world. So not even just in the country, it's actually quite fast, but it's also very, very shocking and painful and the attacks on Native Americans and they show like this, you know, you know, white person scalping a Native American. And, but there's this also this fascinating scene where they, they are, they're showing a river and then it's like this nice serene river. And then the, it's like a drone camera thing. And it goes over this road and these cars are driving on this road and then it moves to these buildings. And the buildings are Auschwitz. And so it's just like, so I just feel like that is really kind of where I was at is that, 
having to confront this and then being able to look at, yes, this is a long-standing, very, you know, severe, atrocious, again, losing words to even describe it, history of what we're grappling with now is part of a very long-standing tradition. And that we do, and this is what Ashindi was saying in her tweet, we've got to face it if we're actually going to be able to deal with this. Yeah, Steve, I think you had used a word um, this week when we were talking unrelenting. Mm -hmm. And um, also, the I, I really do have to check that out, although I guess I will have to mentally prepare myself. But I feel like what you're saying is the insights from that piece is really worth checking out, in, in reminding us how it's all connected. And I I do want to also just share my thoughts around the Chauvin trial and Dante Wright. But in just the past month, I started to do personally, a little bit more research in the wake of the anti-Asian attacks on the history of white colonialism in China, because it's, it's where a lot of the roots come from in terms of um, even anti-Asian racism in this country is from colonialism. And then mm -hmm. for me to get a better sense of just, again, how all of this is connected yeah. glo globally in the ways that I think as Americans, we tend to also focus just on the past um, you know, hundreds, several hundred years of our own country's history, but it's really much broader and deeper than that, longer than that. And in terms of the Chauvin trial and Duante Wright case, yeah, I don't have much more to add. I've, I've been obviously just, just my heart is broken and enraged and all those familiar, unfortunately, and maddeningly very familiar feelings. I have some friends who are African-American mothers with black sons and daughters. And what I am just, what I do is I reach out to them when these, uh, I don't even call them tragedies. When these murders happen, I text them and let them know that I'm thinking of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm so tired of having to do that on the regular. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're tired, you know, and just I'm heartbroken to have to do it regularly, but my, where my heart goes is as a mother. And when I saw the picture of Duante Wright with his son, that's, what's really hard. That's um, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's unbearable. Yeah. yeah, I just yeah. want to pick up on something Steve said about feeling almost offended that we even have to have this trial. And I do think it's really bringing to the, you know, just center the fact that, you know, we're, we're putting so much weight at this moment in time on, um, you know, this belief that the justice system is going to serve up some justice out of this yeah. right that's the whole thing and and i'm actually beginning to realize wow if if there isn't a conviction i don't know how i you know I, i'm a lawyer i you know member of the parliament <laughs> like i have you know devoted my professional life to a belief in this you know legal system and you know whatnot and i i just don't see how how we keep going if if this, as clear as day as it is, doesn't result in in a conviction, it's it's very worrisome. Yeah, but I think that that's also the, the larger dynamic, right? In that I had, I think I sent out a tweet about this. Actually, one of my one of my college friends, um, Frederick Sparks, had commented on this on Twitter and on Facebook about how they're kind of sacrificing the police uh, system, the police establishment is sacrificing Chauvin, and that I think that they're doing that for that very reason is that they're trying to forestall larger protest and larger uh, criticisms of the entire system. And so it is notable. I'm not aware of there having been, you know, uh, po police leadership, lots of people different positions saying, oh yeah, no, what he did was wrong. 
some there was some statistic you know back from back in the day again about the percentage of police shootings that are found to be unjustified homicide. It's just like yeah, my recollection was like one percent or something like that. So to have these officials say no, he what he did was wrong makes me think it's more likely that there will be a conviction. But even that, to me, it kind of cheapens even that. I'm so like, well, it's like you're just sacrificing him to kind of hmm. save your larger your larger you know messages. There's one other point I wanted to lift up in this, and maybe this, you know, kind of a bit of a segue into our other topic, and it has to do with political power and the intersection of political power and bringing about justice and accountability within our society. The reason we are having a Derek Chauvin trial is because of the political power that has been accrued by progressives and people of color and, and our allies within Minnesota in general. And the election of Keith Ellison as Attorney General of Minnesota That's in particular. That's right. It's a good reminder. The local district attorney did not, or certainly was very reluctant around trying to pursue any kind of charges against Chauvin. And it was when the governor took the trial away from the district attorney and gave it to Keith. And Keith is the person who has put together the team to actually be able to try to get some measure of justice. So you see that. And then last night, I was just reading about, so Brooklyn Center, where the where the uh, Dante Wright shooting took place, is a majority people of color city, and awful lot of immigrants is a whole other point. Right? So the mayor, I believe, is uh, Liberian, certainly an immigrant, a young black man. And so what they did, just to, you know, immediately in the days after this, is the city council voted to give the mayor, the African-American mayor, power over the police department after watching the white police chief drag their feet and make excuses and, and not show the appropriate level of outrage to what actually happened. And then the mayor has removed the city manager with his newfound powers that he actually has. And he has the power to actually move, remove the, the police chief as well. So that's a part of this as well, is that these things happen, but they happen without accountability. And they happen without accountability in places where we don't have political power. And that's how all these different things tie together. So we're going to have justice. We've got to have the political power that is reflective of our composition within the population, as well as our fundamental values as a society. So Steve, on that note, let's turn to that. I want to talk about our political power and what the other side is trying to do to it. All of this, again, like connecting the dots, very easy to see how it's two sides of the same coin, where what is happening now is also tied to Meanwhile, the other side is unrelentingly trying to crush uh, our voting rights, and it's the full-on voter suppression and Republicans' efforts to limit voting access. I wanted to quote a statistic here. According to the Brennan Center, as of March 24th, legislators have introduced, as you had mentioned this early, Steve, 361 bills with restrictive provisions in 47 states. That's a lot of bills in a lot of states. No, like, what are the three that are not? So California, <laughs> right. like, what are the other two? All the states. Right? <laughs> we don't have, you know, we don't have any more, many more than the forty-seven states. So, and five of these bills have already been signed into law, including SB two hundred two in Georgia. There's a piece recently in Politico that came out by journalists Nolan McCaskill and Zach Montalero, titled "All Eyes on Georgia Again," and it quotes Biden saying the law is Jim Crow in the 21st century, which also Stacey Abrams recently called um, these laws. This is clearly, you know, what's happening is an example of the battle we're engaged in, in terms of who gets to say what the U.S. government looks like and does 
and who gets to have the political power. So there's a New York Times article, and we'll put that in the show notes, that has um, a lot of the details and um, talks more about what's in that law, um, different kinds of things. There's like 16 key provisions, which just so obviously unapologetically are targeted at suppressing the new American majority vote and the voters who came out and sent Warnock and Ossoff to the Capitol in, in January. And Steve, did you want to say a few more? You have some yeah, great it just, insight. There, it, it's, it's, and again, I hadn't even done a deep dive on it all. And, then, and, and, and it's almost impossible to do that and do anything else but track 361 different things. But two, two examples that I have been able to, that I have seen that are reflective of the, is perniciousness the right word? Evilness the right word? So in Georgia, one of the things that they're banning is they are making it illegal to bring water to people standing in line to vote. So That's how insane, how is that part of a, of, a, of a democracy? How does that facilitate their so-called fraud that you can actually, if you're standing in these long lines, it's like they're trying to actually make it as difficult and painful as possible to reduce the vote. So that's that level of insanity, one piece of the insanity in, uh, in Georgia. And then in Arizona, so one of the things that happened in 2020 was that as Trump was trying to dismantle and literally break the machines in the post office so that we would not deliver ballots so that he could try to prematurely uh, claim victory. A lot of the private sector philanthropic organizations and leaders stepped up and put up money to be able to facilitate the elections so people's votes could actually be counted. And so one, and most famously is the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, right? So Zuckerberg um, and his wife Priscilla Chan, they put up $400 million to give to local entities to be able to hire staff to run the election, be able to set up things like drop boxes so that we could actually have a, an election without having to worry about inadequate resources. And so what Arizona has done is that they have made it illegal for local election administration and entities to take private sector money. And so again, how does this facilitate democracy? They're just trying, to, but they're trying to ensure that the voting system is fair and free of corruption. I mean, it's just wild to see like when, when you read about like what their rationale is, what they come up with. Um, it's just insane. Uh, I did want to just remind our readers again that there are these similar bills moving through Republican controlled states around the country, including, as you mentioned, Arizona, Florida, Michigan, New Hampshire, North Carolina and Texas. And that the, the response has been, you know, there, there has been response. And uh, we can talk a little bit about what we think about that. But the MLB, Major League Baseball, has decided that they're going to move their 2021 All-Star game and draft out of the state of, of Georgia in particular. I'm talking about the response to um, Georgia in particular now. And Republicans, meanwhile, often they're embracing cancel culture, but now they're denouncing it and they're boycotting Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola, which is based in Georgia, made a stance against the bills. They are making it clear that they're opposed to it. And so now Republicans are trying to boycott Coca-Cola. And apparently Will Smith is pulling his movie out, which is a movie called Emancipation, out of all things, a you know, slavery-themed movie. And then just different corporate executives have come out. First of all, many of them gathered over the past weekend online to discuss you know, what's happening in Georgia and take a stance. Uh, over 100 leaders from Delta, American 
United, Starbucks. These are just big Fortune 500 companies. Target, LinkedIn, Levi Strauss, they all hopped on Zoom and they were discussing the right action in response to the bill. So Stephen, Juliet, what is the right move for Democrats right now in Georgia and around the country? Yeah, I did want to say, I want to say two things kind of contextually about all this different stuff, right? So, you know, we've been previewing, we're, you know, working away and trying to get the manuscript together for this next book, right, with the new press, how, how we win the Civil War. And one of the main themes is that, right, the South and Confederates never stopped fighting and that they've had a consistent playbook ever since the end of the Civil War. And so one core component of that playbook has been to rewrite the laws to suppress the vote of people of color. And it goes back to this, what they did after, during, and then particularly after Reconstruction in the 1870s, 1880s, they rewrote the state constitutions to be able to deny the participation of people of color. That's where poll taxes came from and all these different very consciously designed laws to deny people of color to actually participate. So that happened at that point. And then in the early 60s, when people of color, civil rights movement was going on, where people are starting to vote. And so I, that's where runoff elections came from, is that and particularly in runoff elections in places like Georgia. And so I have this line at the moment, we'll see if it survives your editing pen, Charlene. But it says, um, Georgia State Representative Denmark Groover never intended for Verlene Warnock's son to grow up and become a United States Senator. And so in 1964, the state rep in Georgia created runoff elections specifically to be able to allow the white vote to reconsolidate after a divided primary and to prevent there being a unified vote around African-Americans, which is exactly what happened with Warnock. Warnock actually got the most votes in November Mm -hmm. in that uh, special election, but he had to go to a runoff because the white vote was divided. And so that was the whole purpose of it was to deny this. And then so you have those two historical pieces. And now Trump's ousted 361 new bills. So you have that whole piece unfolding. And then there's another thing I want to I'm going to share in a minute. But Julia, how are you processing all this stuff as it unfolds? Uh, well, I mean, the the upside is we have legislation and, you know, we won in November. So we actually have, (laughs) we're positioned to be able to take on, you know, to meet this challenge of these 300 plus bills. So at the federal level, at least we've got, you know, the for the people act and the John Lewis voting rights amendment act. And each of those in its own way is, um, is an attempt to kind of push back on all that. I mean, they're they're obviously interplaying, right? I mean, I think the states are bringing up their, you know, draconian bills somewhat in reaction to the the realization that we might actually be able to get these federal bills passed. But but nonetheless, I mean, the For the People Act, you know, it's all about modernizing voter registration. So things that just make complete sense, like automatic registration, same day registration, protecting against purges that states do to get rid of a whole bunch of voters right before an election, right? Restoring the Voting Rights Act that was, you know, basically torn apart by the courts, getting people who have a prior conviction to be able to to vote again once they've served their time and, you know, taken the steps they need to to get back into society with the rest of us. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of things that that's going to help with. And then the John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment 
Act, that one is very focused on pulling back a lot of those those changes to the Voting Rights Act of 65, like the first one, uh, but specifically around racial discrimination and intimidation at the at the polls, right? And I don't know how many people remember this, but it was not that long ago in 2013 that the Supreme Court actually made you know some significant erosions to what had been in place and protecting voters throughout the South in a lot of places that had historically, you know, been just really difficult places for people of color to have their voice heard through the vote, right? Now that got whittled back and, you know, we've got this opportunity if we can line things up right in in Congress to actually undo the bad and actually move forward and enact some good on top of that. So I, I feel while I get angry and it's like you said, you could get, get overwhelmed in tracking the 300 plus bills, but I think I feel somewhat hopeful about the whole thing because we've got these other things moving and we're, we're in a position to actually get them passed for once. I just want to put a kind of explanation point and lift up kind of the point that Julie was saying, just put these things into, into context, right? That, you know, <laughs> this country was, has a long history of slavery. We had a bloody civil war to be able to end slavery and pass the 15th Amendment, guaranteeing the uh, right to vote. And you have 100 years of uh, segregation and an undermining of that. And then the civil rights movement in the 1960s, John Lewis, Bloody Sunday, Selma to Montgomery, a lot of this captured in the film, Selma. LBJ going before Congress saying we shall overcome introducing the Voting Rights Act, which actually then made it possible for millions of uh, people of color to actually vote and quite frankly led to the uh, possibility of having an electorate where you could elect a black man as president. So that arc was then attacked, undermined by the right. As Julius mentioned, Supreme Court uh, Justice John Roberts was talking about there's not enough racism anymore. And I believe he was pointing to Obama's election around saying, see, everything is fine. <laughs> oh, my God. And so we don't need a Voting Rights Act anymore. So they gutted a big chunk of it. And so now that we have control of Congress, we're trying to actually restore and make the Voting Rights Act a strong and fundamental component of what actually has to take place. And that's interestingly is that as these different things are taking place, there's a great article in the New York Times about while these other Confederate states are rushing to embrace their Confederate heritage, Virginia, which is the capital of the Confederacy, is going the opposite direction. So, Julie, do you want to talk a little bit yeah, about what they're doing yeah. there? Yeah, so our friend down there, Delegate Marcia Price, um, she's actually one of the Sandler Phillips Center fellows right now. Um, just an ama- yeah, she's, she's really something. So she's introduced a new bill around voting rights for Virginians. And, you know, obviously none of this would be possible without our other friend, Tram, and Wynn and the new Virginia majority team down there and all the folks who have been working this for many years to make all this possible. But um, their bill would repeal the state voter ID law, which obviously, you know, has all sorts of negative repercussions for voters of color, for young people, for elderly people, for low-income people. It also enacts 45 days of no excuse absentee voting, meaning that voters can go and cast their ballots for up to 45 days before election day, right? So for everybody who has, you know, a crazy schedule, uh, you know, kids to take care of right after school, all these things that make it difficult to know you can show up on election day, They've got 45 days to get their votes in. Right. And it also I like this one, especially it makes Election Day a state holiday. 
And it also enacts that automatic voter registration that I mentioned before from that federal bill. So this is, you know, really strong legislation. It's leaps and bounds forward for the people of Virginia. And, you know, I'm, I'm just really proud to see the work that, that our friend is doing there. And, you know, it's, it's, this is such a great example of why elections matter. Yeah, and we'll link to the, the New York Times article that really situates it. Um, uh, Marcia's co-author on that, we should know, is uh, State Senator Jennifer McClellan, who is running for governor, and she's the New Virginia Majority's endorsed candidate for governor, and that's going to be in June of this year. So I think we'll be talking more about that and her leadership in the future. So th- there is one thing that I wanted to put forward on 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 this podcast and through this platform, then hopefully we'll be able to actually kind of write about it, put it out there more in the world, right? So obviously, I mean, first of all, how do you even know that there are 361 different things to write, right? And clearly there's a level of coordination here going on on the part of the right wing in terms of trying to methodically and surgically suppress the vote. But the Democrats control the entire Congress and the White House, and there are all these different, uh, you know, at least ostensibly pro-democracy, multi-billionaire people out there, right? I mentioned the Zuckerberg playing a $400 million. You have Mackenzie Scott, who was, you know, Jeff Bezos's, you know, ex-wife and has, you know, many of the billions from the Amazon empire who's spending billions herself around explicitly racial justice. So I mean, really try to flesh out these thoughts more, but it was like, why don't we use all these platforms to call for and to bring the full force of all of our different resources and platforms to make sure that everybody votes. And so we should be fighting and trying to defeat all these particular different bills. But why don't we have a civic engagement coordinator in like every single neighborhood in every city in these different states where there's you know, lower voter participation. That could be like a completely you know, nonpartisan 501c3 effort. Why don't why doesn't every faith-based institution have access to a civic engagement coordinator who can make sure that every person in that you know uh, faith institution is registered to vote and actually gets out to vote? Why isn't the president of the United States use his bully pulpit to be able to challenge to and push that every single person will actually vote? And so I worry that we're too defensive in this fight here and that we're going to be too caught up in the trees for the forest, fighting like each individual 361 different trees. And it's like, it's like whack-a-mole. Right. And why don't we say, no, we're going to make sure we're going to do everything we can to make sure everybody votes and using, using all of our platforms, challenge the corporations to be able to use, you know, when they did the, um, ballot measure in California that that defeated the regulation of the gig economy and Uber in them on the Postmates app, they were putting up a little thing saying, Oh, make sure to do this piece against the legislation. So they used all of their different platforms, every Google search, every Amazon search, make sure you vote. Here's how you vote that we could marshal the power and platforms that we actually have influence on to have a national crusade to make sure everybody votes. And I feel that will do a lot to counteract what they're actually trying to do is utilizing their full platforms to make sure that as few people of color in particular do vote. And it's a, it's a really good point, Steve, about how we are not maximizing enough 
sort of the platforms and the technology and the companies who run these technologies that are on our side. And this, you know, defensive approach of why I called why I was picturing whack-a-mole exactly. is is just it it not only gets us like a net zero sum, but I think it gets us a net zero loss. And I think we just you made a good point. Like we just need to be more creative and bold. And you know, this is just classic. I just think there's a timidity that is um, just maddening for, you know, I think endemic to our side where there's, uh, I think now that we have like all this power, just bring it, right? Just um, Right. And if you got a hundred corporations all saying, what can we do? Well, let's make sure that (laughs) anybody who try, who wants to order uh, coffee from Starbucks knows actually about what has happening in voting. Every single high school in the country should make sure every single high school senior is registered to vote. These are things we could do if we had the determination in force. I was laughing because I was thinking, imagine if you told all adults in America, you cannot get coffee unless you vote, <laughs> unless you show your voter registration card. You know, there's something they're addicted to. Man, we got a lot of voters. <laughs> All right. The last thing I really want to make sure we touch upon, and I know, you know, we're, we're going to close out soon, but I wanted to make sure that we talk about quickly the Republican Party's additional, what I would call newest cause, although it's not even a newest cause that they're going after, but they're just going after it with venom, which is their anti-trans crusade across the country. And uh, Julia, just I know you have some information about that. So I want to have you just take over and share. Sure. Yeah, this is this is a an ugly, ugly side of the work they're doing. So um, we've seen in the states, Republican lawmakers introducing over 90 anti-trans bills. And most of these are actually targeting trans girls in sports, or they're things to prevent access to trans affirming health care. So we've got at least three states already that have passed bills barring transgender girls from competing with other girls on sports teams. And in South Dakota, which you might have heard about because this has really made the news nationally, they've passed a sports bill, but the governor there, Christy Nome, vetoed it. But it's not a good thing. She vetoed it necessarily because she didn't veto it for the right reasons because she believed it was wrong. She actually was primarily worried that since the bill includes college level athletes, the NCAA would likely sue the state and win. And so it's sort of like a defensive posture, basically, like wanting to avoid the wrath of the NCAA, as opposed to just wanting to veto it because it's a completely wrongheaded piece of legislation. And, you know, the big concern is that having to defend the suit would cost the state a lot of money. I also wanted to point out in a recent panel hosted by the ACLU, which was held on March 31st, which is the day of Transgender Day of Visibility. Reggie Greer, who is the White House Senior Advisor on LGBTQ issues, and he said any attempt to discriminate against trans kids or trans people is actually against the law and against non-discrimination laws already on the books. Also, according to the 19th News, which is a news outlet that we really like and everyone should check it out, he had some comments marking that for the first time that the White House has directly addressed just the slew of anti-trans bills popping up. And the ACLU has also vowed to sue states on behalf of transgender children you know, who are being barred from sports due to being transgendered. Steve, I, I wanted to have you offer your thoughts on what you feel the rationale be- behind these Republican attacks are on transgender young people and how does it fit into sort of these larger themes that we talk about, including assaults on progressive ideals and just controlling power? 
Yeah, no, the essence of the right wing, I'm now calling Confederate approach, has been to govern by fanning fear and by fanning fear of the quote unquote other who is going to undermine your way of life and frankly, who is going to put at risk your daughters. And so this goes all the way back. I was looking this morning at the 1712 South Carolina slave code that talks about the the dangerous nature of black people and that you have to have these distinct codes so that they won't be attacking the 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 community. And so you have that, then you you know all the way up to you know Emmett Till who was you know murdered in the civil rights movement allegedly for you know either whistling at or something you know a vulnerable white woman. And so this is the essence of these trans attacks. It's like, oh, you don't know who's going to go into the bathroom with your daughters, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a very long-standing playbook that they've been unfolding. And so I have to say, actually, it's been somewhat heartening that people are standing up against it. And it's it's similar to the, the, the I don't even call it a test run, but the first version of it, right, was in the early 2000s, was all of the anti-marriage equality efforts, right? I mean, gay marriage was the right-wing wedge issue that they use to threaten and to f- mobilize their base and their voters. And so, you know, obviously we've seen the whole arc on that issue, but then this is in that same vein of trying to appeal to that level of fear to be able to motivate their voters. Yeah, again, like we had, it all goes back to what we were saying in the beginning, how many of these headlines, right, feel dis- sometimes different and disconnected when you're just scanning. But when we really start to connect all the dots, it's they're all really connected. It's just like I kind of picture some sort of monster. You know, it's the same old beast where it's the same body, but just different heads. And when we just keep in mind that it is actually one in the same, then, you know, I think that it just helps us unify our strategies and just understanding that at any point when we fight one part, it will weaken the other part. Yeah. So, so we're not done yet. <laughs> that in terms of the struggle for justice in this country, that's no. the takeaway here. Correct. <laughs> it's good to keep in mind mm-hmm. the wins that we do. We do make. Yeah. We do have wins, and yeah. we do make inroads. Yeah, absolutely. It continues. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for being here. What is and what is a you know, difficult time in terms of what we started out with this week, and 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 that is all the time we have for today. And so I want to thank our listeners for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our weekly newsletter at democracyincolor.com, our weekly newly revamped spiffy and exciting newsletter people should sign up for. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production Produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio, San Francisco. And as we close out, I'm, I'm mindful of the last podcast we had. We were talking about the attacks on Asian Americans and that we had referenced the you know, multiracial unity, Black Asian unity in particular. And so I want to leave us with really a song called Prayer for Melvin Trust, uh, the artists John Jang and Francis Wong, who were the creators of Asian improv arts and are you know, great artists in and of themselves. And they created the song back in the 1980s. And Francis talks about how we've had to perform it many times over the years. 
And it really is a dedication to Melvin Trust in particular, but obviously as the many people we have also lost to police violence. And so I wanted to close out with the song, Is a Prayer for Melvin Trust. I offer it as a prayer for Dante Wright. Until the next time. <laughs>